privilege to be here at Grace Covenant Church today. I was thinking as Charles and I were driving in from Columbia, uh, how thankful we are for this church. And most especially for your pastor, because he definitely has a passion and a love to teach you the Bible. And I think that one of the most essential things that needs to be true about every local church is that they indeed have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. And I know every Sunday that I'm able to come and hear Pastor Mark preach, my heart is always encouraged and um, to hear him teach the Word of God. And for that, we're thankful. Again, we're looking at Revelation chapter 1. Let me say this before we get into the text. The last time I was with you, we were in Revelation 1. And I think I remember pretty much where we were at and what we were preaching on that particular Sunday. But we're going to do a little uh, lightning round of something that might seem to be rather quick. But if you be patient with me and uh, maybe I might talk a little fast so you might have to listen fast. It's almost like they say when you're flying, when you get ready to sin, you need to bring your seat up in this upright position, make sure your seat belts are fastened. So, uh, so let's, let's do that. But before I do, look at verse 16, the latter part. Uh, if you'll notice there at the very end, it says in verse 16 of Revelation 1, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we're so thankful, God, for this day. Lord, this is the day that you have made, and we indeed can be glad and rejoice in it. And I pray, God, that is exactly what we'll do. God, we pray your blessings on Pastor Mark and Ali and all their precious children in their travels to their destination and their safe return home. All those that are not here today, God, we pray your blessings upon their life. And God, we're so thankful for those that are here today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us and guiding us into the truth. Thank you for teaching us the word of God. God, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Even David said that he would hide his word or your word in his heart that he might not sin against you. God, thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when we was here the last time or when I preached the last time, when you look back up in chapter one, verse one, again, realize that the scripture makes it very clear in that first verse what revelation is really all about. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond service, the things which must soon take place. 
and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. The word revelation there is actually the word apocalypsis, which actually means an uncovering, something that is unveiled, something that is, that is laying bare. In fact, this word apocalypse or the word revelation, that particular word is found 18 times in the New Testament. But what is unique about the word here is that is the uncovering and the unveiling of what is laying bare here is that this is indeed a revelation of Jesus Christ. When you read all through Revelation, we know that it's primarily a book of eschatology, uh, which is the study of end times or again what takes place in Christ's uh, return and all that entails. Uh, we find much of that in Revelation. But yet at the same time, when you read it all the way through every chapter, every verse, it is clearly, clearly a vision of Christ in all of his exaltation and in all of his coronation. So again, Christ putting on display his glory through his church, which is the last part of verse 16 that we're actually going to get to in just a minute or two, is to make us understand that what is really being revealed and what is displayed here in the church is Christ outshining when it comes to his glory, his coronation, his exaltation that he indeed puts on display through his church. That is to say that if anyone is to see Christ in his glory in terms of his coronation and his exaltation as those that live out the truth concerning him in their lives as they serve Christ and live their life for Christ and live their life according to the Word of God. I remember hearing John MacArthur say something years ago. I thought it was so good, I'll never forget. He says, what you believe to be true about God is how you'll live your life. And what we believe to be true about Christ in terms of His glory, that, if, that is to say, if He indeed is going to, again, display His glory and who He is through His church, we need to know what that is. We need to know what the scriptures actually say about that. So again, this is the revelation of Christ. It's the unveiling. It's the uncovering. It's laying bare the things of Christ in his glory, in his coronation, in his exaltation. So again, essentially, revelation is the unveiling of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ himself. It is the uncovering of his divine glory and his majesty. It displays his sovereign power and his authority. Not only is it of Jesus Christ, as we see there in verse 1, that this revelation is of Jesus Christ, but it's also a revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. When you look at verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So not only is it a revelation of Christ, but it's a revelation from Jesus Christ, and again, the scripture in the last chapter of Revelation makes that clear in chapter 22, verse 16, where Jesus says himself, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So revelation is of Christ, is from Christ, and it is about Jesus Christ. When you look in verse 8, it tells you, he says this about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is 
and who was and who was to come, the Almighty. And then when you look down further into verse 8, that is verse 8, but I meant to say verse 5. Look back there with me in a moment, verse 5. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And then when you jump on down further in verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell down like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. Then verse 18, the living one, I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of hell and death. All of this is actual things mentioned in Revelation about Christ. So again, we see that clearly, that Revelation preeminently is a revelation of Christ, from Christ, and about Christ. And then when you jump on down into further into verse 1, it says here to show to us our which God gave him, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. What is interesting there is that the revelation was given to Christ by God. Pretty clear that that's evident there for his perfect, humble, faithful, and holy service. We know what Philippians 2, 8 through 11 says. Pastor Mark has been teaching and preaching through Philippians. So you've heard this. But in this text, God gives us the promise that he would exalt the son. We know what it says in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on, and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's the revelation the Father actually gave the Son. And then it goes on to say, not only again he gave it, but to show it to his bondservants. Bondservant there in the Greek is doulos. It simply means those that belong to Christ. It is to say that those that are in Christ are privileged to receive this revelation of Christ from Christ about Christ because you belong to him. Privilege to be blessed to know this because you are indeed his doulos. It literally means that Christ owns you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which dwells in you. So therefore glorify God in your body, in your spirit. Because you're not your own, you've been bought and paid for with a price. So again, we see that clearly. And then the things which will soon take place, obviously, is that, again, we're going to see things. And, of course, I won't be getting into those things that primarily deal with the eschatology part of Revelation. But it is a revealing of those things that will come or will happen in terms of Christ's return and all that entails. And then when you look down onto verse two, uh, uh, the latter part of verse 1, it also identifies John as Christ's bondservant, John as Christ's doulos. In other words, what's communicated to him uh, by his angel to his bondservant or doulos, John, again, is the same thing that's to be noticed here, that again, to those who belong to Christ, that Christ literally owns and possesses, John identifies himself the same way. The same way. Then verse 2 would testify to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
So we know as you read through chapter 1, you're going to notice too that he is commanded to write down what he hears and everything that he sees. And just like back in verse 9, where it talks about that the very reason why he was on Patmos was because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The witness that he actually saw in regards to Christ and because of the word of God, everything he saw, everything he heard, he would write down. Now, here's something to me that's very interesting and powerful at the same time. You and I probably would never, ever have a similar vision of what John had or even what he experienced. But it is to say, and I think it is to be realized and understood, that we do see it and we can read about it because everything he heard Everything he saw, he wrote it down. So in that sense, we are seeing the vision. We are hearing what he heard because he records everything he saw, everything he heard in Scripture. What a blessing to have a vision of Christ, to have a vision of Christ in such a way that we're going to see here in just a few minutes the effects that vision of Christ Exalted in his coronation, in his power, in his sovereignty, all that he is, the effect it had on John, which I think in turn, if believed and embraced, as we study this and see this, it should have the same effect upon our lives, just like John, exactly. So he goes on to say there, he testified to the word of God in verse 2, and the testimony of Christ, even to all that he saw. What is interesting, we'll see in a moment, that he finds himself on Patmos being treated as a common criminal because of this reason, the testimony of Christ and the word of God. When you start thinking about the testimony of Christ, we're not talking about necessarily someone that would share testimony about how they came to Christ. Although that's important, but we're talking about what is true about Christ. And the gospel is everything that God has said in his word that is true about Christ. That's what it is. And so because of the testimony of Christ and because of the word of God, John finds himself here on this, pat, on this island called Patmos in verse 9 because of that very, that very thing. So back here again, just look back with you just a moment. Verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words uh, of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. I think the beauty of this word blessed here is to realize that revelation begins and ends with the promise of blessings. It begins and ends with the promise of blessings. In fact, chapter 1, uh, uh, verse 3 in the verse A, we see it right here, the part A of chapter 3 there. It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And then when you uh, read on down further, um, uh, actually uh, in chapter 14, verse 13, it says, that I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Chapter 16, verse 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed 
is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Revelation 19.9 says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Chapter 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has, has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Chapter 22, verse 7 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Chapter 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. From the beginning to the end, there's a blessing to be understood and received in Christ. And then when we jump on down further into verse, verse 4 and 5, uh, as we read earlier, John, uh, to the seven churches that are in Asia, graced you in peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Clearly, Clearly, we see in the benediction here of this first chapter, the Trinity that involves in everything that's to be revealed and unveiled and uncovered by Christ includes God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, when you read there again in verse 4, all the way through chapter 5 in the beginning, or verse 5 in the beginning uh, of that verse, it begins by saying, from him, who is, who was, and who is to come. Clearly speaking of God the Father. The seven spirits who were before the throne is God to be the Holy Spirit because seven always represents the Holy Spirit in its fullness. We're not talking about literally seven spirits, but this is the Holy Spirit. And then the faithful witness is the one who always speaks and represents the truth. That's Christ. Right here we see the Father. Holy Spirit and the Son. I know we usually use it uh, in the way that we say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But again, the faithful witness is Christ. The firstborn from the dead, the protocos, is the Greek word there. Firstborn is the preeminent one. Refers primarily to position or rank, not necessarily to biological birth, uh, but to, again, a person in rank, a preeminent one, and that being Christ. It is to say of all who have ever been or ever will be resurrected, Christ is the premier one, the firstborn of the dead. Then it says ruler of the kings of the earth. He's Lord. He's sovereign. And then again, it goes on to say uh, in verse 5 and 6 that he, he, loved, he has love for us. He released us from our sins by his blood. Scripture that ties into that is Colossians 1.14 where Paul says that in him we have redemption which means uh, to release on payment of ransom. In other words, the ransom that was paid to deliver you and redeem you and purchase you was Christ. And then it says, and the forgiveness of sin, which means the dismissal. And it's a word that means released. That's what he's saying here in the verse again, when he talks about to him who loves us, in verse 5, and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Kingdom there is Basilea, 
which actually means sovereignty, royal power, or dominion, or rule and reign. I've often thought in the Lord's prayers, we know what the prayer that's to be the model for all prayer, which says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Kingdom there were probably better translated, your rule and reign come. And that's in the heart of all those who indeed have put their faith in Christ, whom Christ indeed has elected, he has saved and redeemed. In other words, he says he has made us to be a kingdom. We're subjects of his rule, his reign. If you got a king, you got a king. If you got a king, you got a kingdom. But with the kingdom comes those who serve the king in the realm of the kingdom. And we get that. And then it says in verse 6, to him be glory and dominion. Verse 7, it says, behold, he's coming. In other words, we've seen actually the, the beginning of the verse, the chapter where it's speaking of the revelation of Christ. But then we see here that not only is revelation of something that pertains to the future and even now, but it also speaks of what happened in the past. And that's what you see in verse 7, or again in verse uh, 5, 6, but then leads into 7, which is the future, which is behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be Amen. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then when you look at verse 9, the last time I was here, we, we actually taught about this. I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and in the perseverance um, which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's mentioned again. And actually John mentions himself again after mentioning himself in verse 1 a second time here in verse 9. But again, Basilea here, the kingdom. He says, I'm your brother in the tribulation. Tribulation there actually being a word that means pressure or affliction or distress. Remember where Jesus said in John 16, 33, he says, in me you'll have peace. Because basically in the world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. There's that word which again is translated to mean pressure or affliction or distress. There's kingdom again, but yet there's the word perseverance. And we talked about this much the last time. And I'm just going to briefly say one thing about it. It's a word that actually means to remain under. Or to be steadfast is the word perseverance, to remain under, to patiently endure difficulties without giving up. And keep in mind, this is during a time where there was great persecution. People were scattered. And I can only imagine, here's John, who outlived all the other apostles, probably in his 90s, being placed on an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. I think the dimensions of the island was like three, three by five miles. But it was a place where you were put and treated as a common criminal. And the only reason why he was there is the scripture makes it very clear that he was on the island called Patmos for this reason or because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let me hasten to add that for everyone and any minister, any pastor today that truly knows that it's been mandated by scripture to preach the word of God it's not an option. There's got to be a commitment to fully herald the truth of God's word. But with that's going to come difficulties. 
I think the tip of the iceberg is really beginning to tip more than we realize, especially in this very toxic culture, culture we're living in today. That with those who make a, a bold and courageous step to again embrace the truth and live with the truth, and again, do it in such a way that it leaves no room for any doubt what you believe to be true about Christ because of the way you live. In other words, it's not a day to shrink back. It's not a day to be ashamed of Christ. But we need to be bold. We need to be courageous. We need to realize that even Paul, when he was instructing the church in Rome, he said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. I was talking to a cousin of mine recently, and there was a person we both knew uh, way back when we were in school together, and this individual passed away. And I asked her, I said, you know what, well, I haven't seen him in years since high school, and that's been many years ago for me. But I said, was he a Christian? Oh, I don't know. I don't ask people about those kind of things. I said, Really? You don't ask people about Christianity? You, you don't talk to people about Christ? Well, I just don't figure that's in my business. People get really offended when you ask them about things like that. And I said, um, okay. I said, can I ask you a question? Sure. Are you a Christian? Do you know Christ? Have you indeed repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Christ? Well, you know I have. I said, well, I don't know that you have. Because to me, it's very clear that when you are born again, and you love Christ, you're not ashamed of the gospel. You're not afraid to ask someone, do you know Christ? I mean, I'm certainly not <clears throat> saying that, that, you know, if you have never done that, that, you're bad or something is really wrong with you. But I think it is something that we really need to consider because how is anyone going to know about Christ if we don't live it and behave it and talk about it and talk to people about Christ and share the gospel? I don't know why we find ourselves in a way that we're so ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel. You know, for me... Uh, in Columbia, I've done funerals at about all the you know funeral homes, and once folks know you, they you know uh, know that you're a pastor. That um, you might be surprised at the people who pass away that have no church or pastor, no church affiliation, no pastor, and um, and so they'll call me, and if I'm not busy, I'll be glad to help them. People say, "Well, Dave, how do you do that?" You never met the family. You don't know the person that's deceased. How do you do that? I said, it's easy. I just preach the gospel. I said, what greater opportunity than to preach the gospel? I mean, the person that's deceased is not hearing it. Because you know, in order to, to, to be saved, uh, uh, as far as knowing that when you pass, you go to heaven, it's because you believe the gospel before you got there. Because, listen, when you get there, there's no need for the gospel in heaven because you have to believe it to get there. But then again, if you die separated from Christ and you're and separated from God in eternal damnation in hell, there's going to be need to hear it there because it's too late. You've got to hear it now. 
And so, I, I, you know, people say, I don't know how you do that. But again, I said, it's easy for me. What an opportunity to present the gospel, to share the truth. Well, believe it or not, I got to pray with my cousin. Like she finally admitted, you know, I'm just not sure. Well, let's talk about that. And we did. And she prayed. And for that, I'm so thankful. In other words, we're living in a time where, again, we can't draw back. There's no need to be ashamed. There's no need to be embarrassed about Christ. He's our Savior. Revelation reveals who He is, what comes from Him, and what is important to understand what is about Him. And when we understand we serve a risen Savior that alone died for humanity, for all that would believe, He died for them and alone propitiated God's holy anger against sinful man and provided redemption to all those who indeed would believe that. He's the one that became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made righteous through His righteousness. How can anybody be ashamed about that? How can anybody be reluctant to tell somebody about that? I recall all the times back in the day when I traveled a lot up to New England and had the privilege of working with churches and ministering there. Man, what a place to plant churches. Man, up in New England, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, there's such a need for the gospel. You know, if you've ever done much flying, you know that when you sit beside someone you've never seen before, met before, you're going to strike up a conversation before it's over. Well, what do you do? So if you're a preacher, when they ask you, what do you do? What do you tell them? Tell them you're a preacher. You tell them you love the gospel. And you share the good news. I've had people to listen. And I've had people just say right in my face, I don't want to hear a thing you got to say. Okay, I get that. But at the same time, the power of truth, the power of the gospel. And John says here, and, and in essence, the perseverance that caused him to endure the difficulties and endure everything that he was experiencing. What happened here and the, the reason for that is because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Then he says in verse 10, I was in the spirit that was supernatural. He was outside of himself. He was in something that just pretty much shut down anything that would distract him from being able to clearly hear and see what the Lord was about to show him. And he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in the book what you see, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And that's what he did. So when you read on further in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and every turn I saw seven golden uh, lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. Girded across his chest was a gold, golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it was, has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Right here we see uh, pretty much 
seven very vivid graphic pictures of what Christ is presently doing in this church. Because when you look back up in verse 13, it says in the middle of the lampstand, and we preached on this way back when we were here in this particular verse, in the middle of the lampstand, that's Christ, I saw one like a son of man. And we found in verse 20, it tells us clearly what the lampstand is. It says that the lampstands are the seven churches. So that's a picture of the church. And what it shows there is Christ is the Lord in his church. And if you remember, we saw clearly in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't second guess it. Don't hesitate. Don't vacillate. Don't equivocate. Know and never doubt Jesus Christ is presently building his church today in Rock Hill right here through Grace Covenant Church. And we pray and continue to pray that as He does that, this church will be blessed and it will grow and many will reach for the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, you see the Lord in the church and then you saw too, and we mentioned this the last time I was here, clothed with a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across His chest with a golden sash, again was the picture of Christ in His intercessory ministry interceding, praying for His church, the Lord interceding for His church, literally praying us into heaven. Literally. The time it took to crucify Him and even for Christ to be raised from the dead is short in comparison to know that for over 2,000 years He's been praying for us, interceding for us. You see that all in John 17. Then verse 14, his head, his hair were like wool. Again, was a picture of the Lord purifying his church, refining his church, sanctifying his church, growing his church, maturing his church. Then 15, again, uh, says his voice were like the sound of many waters. There's the Lord's voice of authority to his church. He speaks authoritatively to his church. How do we know that? We receive that through the word of God. Then in 16, uh, the beginning of verse 16, it says, and in his right hand, he held seven stars. That is absolutely the Lord controlling His church. The Lord holds these men, these pastors, these ministers, these messenger, whether it's Pastor Mark, whether it's Pastor Charles, myself, any man of God that's called of God to preach the Word of God. It is to say that the Lord actually holds these men in His right hand. He's in control. The Spirit-filled life is a life that is controlled by the Lord. Be being kept filled is what Paul said in Ephesians 5, which means coming under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's the picture here. Being held by Christ, He controls His church. And the reason why He controls it, because it's His. And if it's His, He can control it. He belongs to Him. It's His church. So the Lord holds these men in His right hand, the place of strictest accountability, strongest protection, and the most strategic usefulness is what is seen here. The word hold indicates keeping all of something in one's hand. It is to say that the man of God, they are directly answerable to and completely controlled by Christ who holds them in His hand. Christ alone has chosen them and He uses them as it pleases Himself. And then it says also that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which is a picture of the Lord guarding and protecting his church from error. 
from those things that are false. And then to 16, as we get ready to close this down, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. That is the Lord putting on display his glory through his church. The revelation of Christ, from Christ, about Christ, is to be said that it's his face that was like the sun shining in its strength. This is John's final detail about the appearance of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. John's vision of Christ, again, is in all of his exaltation, all of his coronation, reaches its climax in this description of the radiant glory that is evident on his face. The glory of God through Christ shines in and through His church. Putting on display and reflecting His glory to the world. Well, how does this happen? When you look back at the verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we know what it says. It says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the face of Christ. Salvation is as much a work of God in His sovereignty as it is in creation. Paul uses the likeness of creation to explain salvation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. All things are passed away. All things have become new. Paul also uses a correlation for salvation taken from the creation of the physical world showing that the same God who said light shall shine out of darkness in Genesis 1-3 said in 2 Corinthians 4-6 is the one who is shown in our hearts. The same God who calls light to be in the universe is the same God that causes light to be in the heart of the believer. Darkness grips the heart of the non-believer until God causes His light of the gospel to shine in the heart. So at salvation, sinners receive what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God shines the light into sin's darkened hearts through the proclamation of the truth concerning Christ. That brings true knowledge of who Christ is and that is the glory of God that shines in His face. As I said earlier, the gospel is what God has said to be true about Christ. Everything we have just read, everything that we've gone through rather quickly, has everything to do with what is of Christ, what is from Christ, and what is about Christ. This whole chapter deals with Christ. Christ highly lifted up. Christ seated at the right hand of God in heaven. I've got to share another quick story here. I remember one time I was doing a funeral years ago for a man that served Christ faithfully. He was a deacon in his church. And he passed away at a rather uh, old age. He was like in his 90s, which was wonderful. Great longevity there. But I remember when I was reading in Acts 6 and 7, as I was praying about the service, how that even Stephen, who though, again, I know it doesn't say they were actually deacons, but they did serve. They waited on the tables that the apostles 
were having to do that took them away from prayer to study the Word. But Stephen was mightily used of God in the first century church. And when he preached the message that was so powerful, the gospel that was true about Christ, again, using the Old Testament and using all these truths that would again uh, bring to bear upon hearts and minds the truth about Christ, there were people that became so infuriated about it. You know what happened is that they were so angry, they came on him with gnashing of teeth. It's almost like to say they were so angry that they wanted to bite him. Have you ever been so angry with somebody you wanted to bite them? My mom said, I had a habit of doing that when I was a baby, but she broke me of it. But they did, and they took up stones and began to throw them at him to kill him. Why? Because of the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. The testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. And before he actually dies from being stoned to death, and they say that that's one of the most horrible ways to die. Is to, be, is to have rocks and pebbles and stones thrown at you until it kills you. Very painful. But right before he gave up his spirit and died and went to heaven, it says that God graced him with a vision. Almost like even what we see here in some ways for John. And it says that Stephen saw the glory of God in heaven. And Jesus standing at his right hand or at his right side. Now, all the way through the scripture, you can see that where Christ is now, he's seated or he's at his right hand or he's seated. But on this one occasion, he's standing. And I'm thinking, what is to be made of that? I don't want to read anything into it or put something there that's not there or add or take away from anything in scripture. But there has to be something about a person. And Stephen was actually the first martyr in the first century church that died because of the Word of God and the testimony of Christ. That before he actually left his body, his body died. His heart beat its last beat. He took his last breath. He was graced by God to have a preview of heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. And I'm thinking, so there must be something about a child of God going to heaven that brings Jesus to his feet to welcome you home. So that's really what we're seeing here. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about Christ in heaven, in his coronation, exalted, high lifted up, as Isaiah saw in chapter 6, his train filling the temple in his glory, and the angels crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, is what? is seen here in Revelation chapter 1. So in this powerful text about Paul here that we're seeing there in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, it, is, it is the glory of God that shines in His face, Christ's face. Paul revealed that the very essence of the believer's life is to look to Christ. Is to look to Christ. That is precisely what we have here in Revelation 1, 16, as we read, if we believe that this is Christ putting and display His glory in and through His church, we should live our lives for His glory. When we come to the end of our lives, all that will really matter is an affirmative answer to this important question. And it's this, did we live our lives for the glory of Christ? 
If we fail to live for Christ, we have wasted our lives upon earth. But if we seek Christ's glory, our lives will have been well spent and lived to the fullness. So only in the pursuit of the glory of Christ will our lives count for time and eternity. Christ's face shining, displaying and reflecting His glory in and through His church is seen in all that was preceded there. Christ in the middle of the lampstand, building, empowering, advancing His church. Christ interceding for His church. Christ purifying His church. Christ speaking authoritatively to His church. Christ controlling His church. Christ protecting His church. Church is all to do with putting on display His glory in and through His church. So this is Him putting on display His glory. He's building. He's empowering. He's advancing. He's interceding. He's purifying. He's speaking authoritatively to His church. He's controlling His church. He's protecting His church. And all that is to say is Him putting on display His glory in His church. I feel so sorry for people who have a problem worshiping God. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to be bored. If you don't understand the truth of worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Again, John says, when I saw my fellow at his feet, there's humility, there's a repentant heart. What is it? What is it with people that live to talk about seeing Jesus? And it's just like watching a movie. John saw him and he fell down like a dead man. When you encounter the King of Glory, that is something that almost is impossible to communicate in words that would be adequate. I've never seen Jesus. Have you? I do look forward to the day that I do see Him. Can you imagine that? Can you just get some kind of picture in your mind, whatever you could imagine? And think about it in your mind, in your heart, what it's going to be like when you see the one who redeems you and saved you and paid the price. John says, when I saw my fellow at his feet, there's humility, there's repentant, a repentant heart. Seeing Christ in all of his coronation, his exaltation and his glory made John aware of his own sinfulness. Seeing Christ for who he is certainly reveals who we are. John realized he was in the presence of Christ, the Holy One. And why was John so humbled? He was looking upon unveiled deity. No human being inhabiting sinful flesh can look upon God and live. Exodus 33.20 says, God told Moses, you cannot see my face and live. You see, again, that repeated in Ezekiel chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 43, Ezekiel 44. You see in Isaiah chapter 6, you even see it with, with Saul of Tarsus, that when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, he was blinded. So encountering the King of glory is not just anything to be looked at and winked at and just look at in such a way that it's just, you know, just something that, you know, uh, you know I just saw Christ. And he says he fell down, fell down, and it was like a dead man. 
there came the reverential fear, the fear, the, the, the attitude of extolling the worth of Christ, that reverential fear, which in many ways is missing in the church today. Is fearing God a legitimate response to His holiness? Indeed. Yes. Absolutely. I think about in Matthew 17, 1-6 on the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened to Peter, James, and John when they encountered Christ being transfigured and there was, what, Elijah and Moses, right? It says they fell down. They were afraid. But they heard a voice from Him and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to what He says. But when you encounter this kind of glory, when you encounter this kind of power, when you encounter the King of glory, there's humility, there's repentance, and there's a godly fear. Ecclesiastes says in the very last chapter, last verse, when all is said, fear God and keep His commandments. That's it. Then that reassuring peace that John experiences when Christ laid his right hand upon him. That was a familiar hand. John was in that inner circle with Peter and James. See that 1 John 1 1 where he says, We held, we were there, we saw him, we held, we touched. It actually says that was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That was John again in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. So it was a touch of comfort and assurance. John needed to be reminded of Christ's healing mercy and strengthening grace. It's amazing how that in His mercy He does what He does for us. God in His grace gives us what we don't deserve in His mercy. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. And Jesus continues to give John a fuller revelation of himself. And that's powerful. We saw that. We read it. Verse 17, 18. I'm the first, the last, the living one, and I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. When John's probably thinking, what's going to happen to the church? Where do we go from here? What's going to happen? But Christ reveals him, assures him, I've got it. It's my church. I control it. I'm building it. I've empowered it. I'm advancing it. And again, he clearly sees the powerful claims of deity. Jesus says, I am. All those I am in John, John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection of life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and life. John 15, I am the true vine. I am is the divine name God chose for Himself. It signifies His eternality, His self-sufficiency, and His gracious redemption, Yahweh. Is God's name, the Lord's name, Exodus 3, verse 14. And now Jesus takes this divine name, Himself, to identify Himself. Make no doubt about it, Jesus claims to be God, the first and the last. Jesus claims to be the first and the last. There's another claim for deity. And as we move on, I'm the first. Christ lays claim on eternal pre-existence. Christ claims to have existed from eternity to past. And because Jesus is the first, it is to say, He is always previous. Jesus Christ said that He looked forward to being with God where He was before He came. In John 17, 5, again, completely assuring us of His pre-existence and His own eternality that He's always been and always will be. And He said He's the last Christ is described as eternally immutable. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. 
He said he was the living one. Another divine name given for himself. This means he's the source of life. 1 John 5, 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And he said, I was dead. What does that mean? The Greek text literally says, I became dead. The living one, the eternal God, who could never die, became a man and did die. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And He said, I am alive forevermore. Christ lives forever in a union of glorified humanity and deity. Romans 6, 9 says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And he says, I have the keys of death in Hades. Jesus said that. Death signifies the condition of the dead. Hades the place. Hades is a New Testament equivalent of Sheol. In the Old Testament, it refers to the place of the dead. Keys denote access and authority. Jesus has the authority to decide who dies and who lives. John, like all who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, had nothing to fear since Jesus had already delivered him from death and Hades by his own death. And then finally, the results of the vision produced a sense of responsibility and duty. Verse 19, therefore, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. John is reminded as a duty and responsibility, three important aspects in verse 19. The things which you have seen, what John had just seen, and recorded in verses 10 through verse 16. Right. The things which are in regards to the seven churches in Asia Minor, chapters 2 and 3. Right. The things that will take place after these things as future events unfold in chapter 4 through chapter 22. Right. Like John, all Christians are to pass on the powerful truths we have learned from the visions recorded in Revelation. Remember, Revelation 1.1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you, God, for everyone that's here this evening. Oh, God. Thank you for giving us ears to hear, hearts receptive, eyes that see the truth concerning Christ. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.